back up here. <laughs> Thanks. What a privilege it was uh, for me to be able to travel to northern Iraq, to Kurdistan, and see the incredible things that God is doing there. And I had the opportunity to share about that on Wednesday evening here at the church. And boy, if you weren't there, um, let me just say, God is doing some incredible things that would blow your mind. They blew my mind. And that he is acting in such a way in parts of this world uh, is stunning, a stunning reality. His word does go forth. It does not return void. And it bears eternal life. And it produces fruit. And it spreads like wildfire. What a privilege when we not only get to see that, but participate in it just a little bit which we all have the opportunity to do, which he's called us all into doing. So thank God for this incredibly enormous and glorious purpose that he has given to his, his sons and his daughters. Thank God. So that was an incredible privilege for me to go there. And in my absence, um, two very faithful men stood here and proclaimed the word of God, Ben Ossenbach and Vin Upham, and both of them faithfully handled scripture and I think helped to point this church in a very right direction, something that I'm quite passionate about too. How do we share this gospel with those around us, with those all over this globe? And that we must be about this business. Last week did end a little differently though, didn't it? I had a bit of a scary moment when Vin went faint and left this stage uh, in an ambulance. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update about Vin, because I imagine there's still a lot of concern and a lot of worry. Uh, Vin is doing, well, immediately after that, he almost entirely revived. So thank God for that. He, he's doing quite well. Uh, that was because of his multiple myeloma, cancer, and the anemic situation that that puts him in. Um, though I do want to give you a couple more updates, and I have permission from the Uphams to do this. Uh, Vin received his first chemo treatment this past week. Uh, he's a little wiped out right now. I think that's why we don't see them. Um, recently, he was, had a coughing fit, and he may have cracked a rib. So it's just a rough time right now for Vin, for Charlene, for both of them. So we're going to pray. Just take a moment and pray for the Uphams and lift them up, because we do, we do love them, don't we? Let's pray. Father, you certainly know that we, we love the Uphams, and we know that you love them far more than we can imagine. Uh, and so we pray your hand upon them, that you would carry them through this very difficult time and where there is a lot of uncertainty. There's no doubt they are being forced to rely on you to greater and greater degree. And so I pray, Lord, that as they do, their faith would grow. They would see new things of you that would quicken their hearts, that they would be an incredible blessing to you and to, to your church as they walk this path of endurance. God, we, of course, desire to see healing, to see recovery. But we know that's not always your plan. And so whatever you have before them, may it all be to your glory. Help us as a church to love them and support them in, in all the appropriate ways. And we pray for that rib, that that would heal up quickly too. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. Well, as I said, we are deviating from the book of Revelation for this short Easter season, and today we are in the book of Luke, which we began in the adult Sunday school class in, in this room today. Josiah Stevens, one of our elders and the worship leader, uh, led us, uh, opened the book of Luke for us in that study. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, where we read about the triumphal entry. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 44, so hopefully you've got a Bible and Maybe you've seen that in the front of your bulletin, you've already turned to it. Hence, the passage is always right there on the front of the bulletin. <laughs> and then, anyway, it's likely that if you've been in the church for a long time, the story of the triumphal entry is very familiar to you. It's a, a, a story of great, well, a great triumph. It's in the name. It's the sto a story of great joy, excitement. It's the beginning of the Easter week and of the events that follow it in the gospel narratives, it's the glorious worship of the Messiah erupting out of these crowds that line the road. Jesus is receiving, finally for the first time in the gospels, the honor that he is due. 
But you know it's not just a joy-filled moment. It was most assuredly not just a joy-filled moment. There definitely was joy. But there was this tension that sort of undergirds the whole story, and it's, it's a tension that will only be broken by death. The Jerusalem that was and the Jerusalem that was coming were on this inescapable collision course. And at the end, there will only be one Jerusalem left standing. So what I want to do today as we look at this passage of the triumphal entry is set the context of what's going on. And how does this context show us that Jesus is the knife which divides all of humanity? All of us, all of us have fallen on one side or the other of the knife that is Christ. There are only two different types of people, those from the old Jerusalem and those from the new. We'll see that this morning. Let's read this passage, Luke 19, again, verses 28 through 44. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and to them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he's drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." Father God, I ask that you give us spiritual wisdom to discern the words that we are reading. And as Josiah prayed, let these words not not just fall on us like, like it means little. Let it fall on us and transform us and change us, recreate us, make us more and more into the image of your Son. You say that your word has this power. Now, Lord, we ask for that power to be active and alive in our hearts this morning. God, help us to remove distraction from our hearts and our minds. Remove the things that would snatch this seed away, this seed of truth, that there would be much fruit as it grows. Thank you, Lord, that we do have this beautiful opportunity to unfold your word and be washed by it. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. So as I said, the tension in Jerusalem was palpable. The people were in a near frenzy and they were wondering if Jesus truly was the Messiah. Everybody in Jerusalem was asking this question, is this the man? The anointed one? They were wondering if their moment was the moment that the kingdom of God would finally break upon them. That the Romans would be crushed. That the 
glory of Israel would finally return to Jerusalem. That maybe, just maybe, the Shekinah glory would fall in the temple like in the days of David. But man, they had no idea. They had no idea the fulfillments that were happening in front of them. Conversely, the religious establishment, they despised everything that Jesus was. They were convinced that that he's an imposter. They were unable to deny his miracles, so they were determined to bury them. And not just the miracles, they wanted to, to bury the man himself. This man from Nazareth. Meanwhile, the disciples, and I don't mean just the twelve, they just wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to know him. They wanted to be in his presence. And their displays of affection seem to intensify here in these, this last week of Christ's life before the cross. Their commitment to him is growing. They're beginning to understand, though there need to be more f- fulfillments before they can. But such is the backdrop of the triumphal entry. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to breeze through a number of different scriptures and show you what's going on, starting from Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many Jews began to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. The Jews were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he not come for the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees have given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Based on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing Jesus. As the people heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Can you hear that tension? All the weight of the situation seeming to come into this pinpoint of a moment that we're reading about? The triumphal entry broods with this anticipation. The religious leaders pitting themselves against Jesus, the disciples anticipating some coming change. They don't know what it is yet. They weren't sure, but they just wanted to be near to Jesus. And then there's the people anticipating the imminent come of the kingdom of God that is going to appear at any moment, but they anticipate a kingdom of their own making, not the one that was budding right before their eyes. This is what Jesus told them. He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? And indeed, the storm clouds gathered on the horizon But very few had eyes to see them, to understand what was happening. And the triumphal entry serves as this brief moment of calm before the storm breaks. It's a window, 
a window into the true kingdom of God, as it is to be, a sudden releasing of joy and worship. But it is just a window and a brief moment. For in a few days' time, these many in these crowd, in this crowd, will go from shouting Hosanna to crucify him. So now returning to our passage in Luke. It opens with Jesus finally drawing near to Jerusalem, a journey that he has been on now for nearly three and a half years. You see in verse 29 there in, in Luke 19, Jesus approaches Jerusalem from Bethany. That's where Lazarus was from. And John tells us that in his gospel that there are Large crowds gathered there to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. They, they want to see them both. They want to see this man who is a miracle, uh, Lazarus, and the man who worked the miracle, Jesus. So it would seem that the night before the triumphal entry, this tiny little town called Bethany is bursting with commotion. And all of these excited people, its population is probably quite swelled on the night before the triumphal entry. And gospels, uh, rather, John's gospel also seems to make it clear that the disciples, those who are close to Jesus, those who know Jesus, they just wanted to spend time with Jesus. And likewise, Jesus just wanted to spend time with them. And so they have this very intimate dinner together. And this was their last time like this, really, before everything began to change. But after this dinner, and perhaps after they spend the night in Lazarus' house, the next day, Jesus leaves, and the disciples leave Lazarus' house. They, they start going towards the Mount of Olives, which is uh, right above them, right, right next to them. And likely, these, cloud, these crowds, they have been watching. They've been watching the door of Lazarus' house, waiting for Jesus to emerge. So they see him, and then they begin following him. This huge mass of people waiting for him. And Bethany starts following him up towards the Mount of Olives. Now, there's some ambiguity in the text here, but it is my, my guess that Jesus has not yet reached Bethphage when he pauses for a moment and he doesn't pause to take a break for rest, but to send two disciples ahead of him into Bethphage to fetch the colt of a donkey. You know, so he has not yet crested the Mount of Olives. He's still somewhere down beneath it, looking towards Bethphage. Let's read about that in, starting in verse 29. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he told them. And, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. See, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing here. You know, he's fulfilling ancient prophecies very intentionally. He's not, he's not looking to manipulate the situation, but he is doing this to show that he is the Messiah. He's doing it because he is the Messiah. He is, Jesus himself is the long-awaited fulfillment of Scripture. So from Genesis, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. And famously from Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So when Jesus sends his two disciples into Bethphage to fetch this colt, he's not made previous arrangements with the owner of the colt. I'm going to send two guys to you. They're going to get this colt, bring it back to me, all right? That's not what's happening. This is a demonstration of Christ's sovereign omniscience, his all-knowing, all-seeing knowledge. So not only does Jesus know the exact circumstances in which to find the cult, but also the conversation that's going to happen afterwards and how to navigate through it. He knows the right words to say in this situation. And he is entirely aware that the whole thing is to fulfill Scripture. He needs this donkey to fulfill Scripture. So Jesus is actively fulfilling Scripture. In other words, it's not just something that's happening to him. He is the active agent in the fulfillment of Scripture. So do you understand what that means? Jesus is not swept up in the current of history. He is shaping history. He is the maker of history because he is the king. Sovereign over time. Sovereign over prophecy. And he shapes history by submitting to the will of the Father. For not only does Jesus know that he needs to ride in on a donkey, that the crowds are going to receive him as a king, but he's painfully aware of where that path goes next. And soon it will be taking him to a horrific execution and brutal shame and his beloved father forsaking him. He knows what it all means. And he knows that it is the father's will. And he does not shrink back, even here in this moment. Now I have this image in my mind, and it is entirely in my imagination here. I'll take this as scripture. And Jesus is walking, having left Bethany, approaching Bethphage. Maybe he suddenly staggers with some unseen burden. Perhaps there's an old gnarled olive tree by the road that he leans against. The disciples, of course, they would be immediately concerned seeing Jesus stagger like this. But then with weariness in his eyes, Jesus sends two of the disciples to go get this foal. And the disciples run off, right? In a, in a similar way that we might run off for a wheelchair when somebody suddenly grows faint. And that's, again, not scripture. That's just the picture I have when he asks for this foal, knowing what it means. But however it plays out, he does know that the next few moments are going to be beautiful. He knows that the unbelievable beauty that's going to unfurl through an empty tomb, but he is entirely aware of the destructions that are coming as well. The destruction of his body and the destruction of a city. You know, isn't that true for so much of life? There's so much to rejoice in. So much to weep over. Though Jesus stands near the mountaintop, he knows that the joy set before him is taking him directly through the valley of the shadow of death. And he will walk it. Well, it doesn't take long for the disciples to return with the cult. Luke's narrative makes it seem like they're just immediately there. Look at that in verse, starting in verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along the road, they spread their cloaks on the road. There's a peculiar detail in there. Right there at the end of verse 35, it says that they set Jesus on the colt. Like they lifted him up and put him on the colt. The other gospels say that Jesus mounted the colt, implying himself. But here they are setting Jesus on the colt. Maybe, maybe Jesus was feeling a particular burden or weariness. But either way, Luke is doing something very intentional here. This seating of Jesus on the colt is like an enthronement. The place where a king sits. You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about a donkey who has never been sat on before, which is what Jesus references here. That's that's the ride of a king. 
So they are enthroning Jesus on this humble donkey. It's revealing Christ's royalty, that he is indeed the son of David, the one who holds the scepter of Judah. It's the disciples who place him there. It's the disciples who place him there. That's an important detail. It is the disciples who place him there. They are the ones who love him. They are the ones that are beginning to understand that this is indeed the king in a different way, in a more profound way. They want to honor him. They want to raise him up. They enthrone him on this colt. And then, in a desperately incomplete sort of way, the people immediately recognize what has just happened. You see that there in verse 36. And as he rode along the way, they spread their cloaks on the ground. So they throw their cloaks on the ground. Do you know there's, there's one other time that happens in Scripture? And it's for the anointing of a king. So they're recognizing that What's happening before our eyes is the exaltation of Jesus as king, so they throw their cloaks down, just as happened when Jehu was anointed king. And Jehu said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took off his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. There's a reenactment of this happening now as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. The crowds lay their cloak on the road before Jesus. It's a symbol of Jesus' kingship, and it is also identifying Jesus with Jehu. You know, every one of the Gospels includes the triumphal entry. And every other Gospel tells us the, the crowds are also cutting branches, like palm branches. And, and throwing them on the path too. But Luke makes no mention of branches, of palms. It's just cloaks. And I believe that be, that's because Luke is especially keen to draw a link between Jehu and Jesus. And I'm going to tell you more about that in a bit. But not only are the crowds symbolizing Jesus' kingship by throwing their cloaks on the road, but it's also seen in what they began to shout, verses 37 and 38. And as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus moves through Bethphage up to the crest of the Mount of Olives. The crowd has gone with them, many of them his disciples. And it would seem that many had gone on ahead of Jesus as well. Perhaps maybe in that moment when Jesus was waiting for the donkey, a bunch of them went on ahead, lining the road. And then John's gospel tells us that there's a large crowd that leaves Jerusalem coming out of the city. They had caught wind of the approaching king and they race out to participate in this royal procession. And as we will shortly see, some of the religious leaders came out with them, probably right out of the temple because they're approaching the temple. But they weren't seeking a king, they were seeking a criminal. Even still, the crowds erupt in their praises of Jesus. And it's not just a frenzy. It's not just delusion. The end of verse 37 says, the crowds rejoice over Jesus because they had seen his mighty works. They had seen his mighty works. So like we've already reviewed just a short time earlier, Jesus raised a man from the dead. Likely, Lazarus is on the street somewhere with them right now. Perhaps some of them were counted among the 5,000, which, which Jesus fed with only a few loaves and fish. Perhaps some in the crowd had demons cast out of them. We know of one. They saw Jesus heal. They saw, they saw that the blind see, the paralyzed could walk, the hopeless now dance with hope and with joy. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there are some in the crowd who have been touched like this by Christ. 
and throngs of people, they rejoice over Jesus with divinity in his hands. The coming of the King of glory to Jerusalem. They rejoice with Scripture. You know that's what they're doing? When they shout out their praises, they're rejoicing with Scripture. Quoting Psalm 118, where we read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And little did the crowds understand that the Lord whom they were blessing, who came in the name of the Lord, he was the festal sacrifice, soon to be bound and taken to the altar. Some of the disciples had an awareness, but they didn't really know. So they rejoice. They rejoice over their king and his coming to Jerusalem. His mighty works attested to it. This man, Jesus from Nazareth, came in the name of the Lord. His his miracles were proof of it. He is, without a doubt, God's anointed. The Jews understood it. They were celebrating their long-awaited Messiah. And so what the the crowds are proclaiming here is an echo of what was first proclaimed proclaimed by the angels at the very beginning of Luke. The crowds say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar? To what the angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Fascinating that the angels say peace on earth and from earth we hear peace in heaven. Because here for such a brief, brief moment, The cry of heaven is united with the cry of earth. The smallest of windows into this great, glorious new reality being initiated by this king. A new creation. A kingdom that would come where God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But indeed, it's just a brief moment. First, there must be more fulfillments. Jesus' short ride into Jerusalem, which is the beginning of the, the end of his ministry, is wrapped in fulfillments. All of it is pointing to, as I've said a number of times now, all of it is pointing to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the servant of the Lord, that he is the scepter of Judah, that he is the son of David, the king of Israel. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. In the coming days, they would forever reveal that Jesus is not just the son of David, that he is most profoundly the son of God. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all kings, of all the earth. This Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Not everyone is filled with joy. The religious leaders do not see an approaching king. They see a blaspheming imposter. As the crowds worship, they sit in the seat of scoffers and they rebuke him. And it is clear right there that Jesus is the knife dividing humanity. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It would be easy to think that Jesus means if, if the crowds do not worship him, then the rocks are suddenly going to have voices and they will worship him. There was an element of truth. There is an element of truth in that understanding. But it is certainly not the whole truth. Remember first that creation is falling, is, is fallen, rocks included. They do not exist in some greater sanctified state than you and I. Paul says that they are in bondage to corruption. So 
They don't have a better voice than us, you might say. But what is, what Jesus is saying, what is being revealed, speaking stones, these are an eschatological Old Testament voice of judgment from Habakkuk chapter 2. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The stones cry out, woe. The religious leaders had cut off many peoples. Very next moment in this narrative, Jesus goes into the temple and he calls it a den of robbers. This place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations has become a den of robbers. Jerusalem had killed their prophets and they have already set in motion a plan to kill their Messiah. Indeed, this was a city built on blood and founded in iniquity. And its greatest iniquity of all, unrepentant self-righteousness. And in a brief span, there would be stones that cry out. One stone would roll away, opening its mouth, proclaiming, Hallelujah, He is risen! And another stone that we read about in Revelation, like a great mountain, ablaze and hurled from heaven, it would be forever cast into the sea. It was the doom of old Jerusalem. Salvation and judgment. And we don't need speaking rocks to tell us about this in the triumphal entry. Because there's the people rejoicing in the king who brings salvation. And there's the king who is the rock, proclaiming judgment on the city that soon will reject him. Voices of salvation and voices of judgment. Verse 41 And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Every time you read about Jesus weeping, you should really take note. It would appear that Luke has just backed up in time a little bit. I think he's putting this proclamation over Jerusalem right next to the Pharisees' rebuke because of that theme that links them together, the opposition that Jesus faced from Jerusalem. But I believe chronologically that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem the moment that he crests the Mount of Olives and looks down upon the city. Because from there, the Mount of Olives is 300 feet higher than Jerusalem, than the Temple Mount. So from the Mount of Olives, he can see into the temple courts. He can see Jerusalem and all of its expanse. And he sees it. And he weeps over it. This once glorious city, once beloved city. He weeps. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." It's no wonder he wept, because with stunning accuracy, his words find precise fulfillment in 70 AD when the full military, of might, full military might of Rome gathers around Jerusalem, that once beautiful city, and the whole place is brought to ruin. The stone cried, woe, and destruction fell like a hammer. Let's revisit a theme that we've seen in the triumphal entry that Luke has been, I think, weaving beneath the surface. 
for us, very intentionally, linking Jesus to Jehu. Remember when that happened, when the link happened? When they threw their cloaks on the ground, just as they did for Jehu, when he was anointed king, here they're doing it. Here's the problem, though. Jehu, I don't know if you remember that story, he's an uncomfortable figure. Jehu was one of the evil kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Though he was maybe one of the better evil kings, God declared in 2 Kings 10, verses 30 through 31, that Jehu's reign began well. And he says why it began well. Do you know why? Because Jehu's reign began in blood. God used Jehu to destroy the exceedingly wicked house of Ahab. So Jehu Jehu kills Jezebel. He kills all the 70 sons of Ahab. He kills the prophets of Baal. He kills the enemies of God. Jehu was God's destroyer. Jesus is also God's destroyer. Jesus' reign also began in blood. His own blood. His own blood. And we learn now that Jesus destroys the enemies of God in two ways. The blood that Jesus spilt as his reign began was for our sake, right? Because we deserved death. We deserve to be crushed. We deserve condemnation because we have so offended God with our countless sins. He has made us to be righteous and we have perverted that at every turn. And so Jesus dies as a substitute in our place, dying our death, spilling his blood that ours need not be. And by his own precious blood, Jesus destroys the enemy of God by transforming enemies into sons and daughters. No longer enemies, but friends in the family of God, where all the promises of God now find their yes through Jesus Christ, are ours, and the enemies have been defeated. There is no enemy of God whose sins are so egregious that this blood will not wash them clean. No matter what you have done, No matter what guilt you carry, no matter the darkness you have visited, Christ is enough to forgive you and to bring you into the light and transform you into son or daughter. And all you need to do is repent and believe. Submit to this king and live. But do not reject the king. Make no mistake, like Jehu, he brings destruction upon the self-righteous and the unrepentant and destroys them. All who suppress the truth of the Messiah and who believe themselves to be good enough without the blood, they will be eternally ruined in a judgment that has no ending. Such an eternal destruction was imaged for us in the destruction of a city that rejected him. Jesus came in judgment against Jerusalem just as he will one day judge the living and the dead. It was Rome that surrounded Jerusalem in 70 AD. But they were the hammer and the divine hand wielded by the Messiah He was the one. He was the one who turned the walls to fire and the streets to blood. He is the rock. He is the stone of judgment. And just as he prophesied, he did it. Within 40 years of these words being uttered, not one stone was left upon another. And yet the coming destruction gives Jesus no pleasure. 
He's grieved by it. He mourns over the impending woe. How long he had wanted to gather the children of Israel together. But they refused. And instead of reverence, they scoffed with rebuke. The king had come, and the triumphal entry is the beginning of this full, revela- full revelation. A revelation that is completed in, in blood and resurrection. It is the time of visitation, and it cuts humanity in half. Can you see that here in Luke 19? Humanity being divided. As Christ divides humanity, we must ask, I must ask, how do you see this man? Do you come out of the old Jerusalem? As many signs as you have seen or heard about, it isn't, still it isn't enough. You want some, someone to prove it to you, but you know that there isn't enough proof. You scoff at this Jesus and all of his frenzied believers out there waving their branches. And you think that if there is a God, he knows that you're a good person. Do you show up with the worshipers, with the disciples, Wanting a kingdom that will make your life better? Maybe you want Jesus to give you some happiness, some peace, some hope. Maybe, maybe you want Jesus to give you a healing or a payday. Maybe you want a seat of special privilege with secret knowledge and powerful giftings. Maybe you think that you will, you will impress Jesus because of all of your theological knowledge and all the right things that you do, so much better than all the rest of these Regardless of which, you worship to receive, wanting the king's rewards more than you want the king. Yours is the worship of the old Jerusalem, and you seek to pile tables with stolen gold. If you scoff at Jesus, or worship a God created in your own image to serve you, you worship in the old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem was rewarded with fire. So too will you be. But see how Jesus weeps? See how it breaks his heart? Pains him. The people would refuse him when he has life so freely to give. Friend, leave that old city behind and follow the king. Go out and meet him. Today is the day of visitation. Today is the day of salvation. Will you not recognize his call to you now? And from the other side of this knife that divides humanity are the true worshipers. Are you counted among them? Just as on the Mount of Olives, a massive portion of the crowd, they were Jesus' disciples, Jesus' true followers, mixed in into this confusing mess, which sometimes is the church. And they had much more to learn, but they were his, these true disciples. They knew the man named Jesus, and they loved him. Very soon, Jesus would show how much he loved them as he laid down his life for them. And they love Jesus because they understood on some level that he is more than a man. That he is God who has become flesh to restore what is corrupted, to redeem what is irredeemable, and to touch those who are untouchable. They knew this in the man Jesus of Nazareth. He was uniting heaven and earth. They didn't just see a man or a mere dispenser of your best life now. They saw a king worthy of worship, worthy of a life of devotion, and they trusted in this king for salvation. Are you one of these? Are you a true worshiper? Are you absolutely gripped in the core of your being by the reality that Jesus is king? And if you are gripped by this reality by the fact that Jesus is king, then you, brother and sisters, 
are the overcomers who proclaim the gospel of his kingdom in all the world. You are. You are the selfless servants who empty themselves to heal the sick, to strengthen the weak-hearted, and to bring justice to the oppressed. You are. You are the living stones that cry out praises. You are the new Jerusalem. You are the voice, the hands of this glorious king. You are. So worshipers, so long as you are here, on this earth, then for the countless who have not yet heard, who have not yet seen, today is the day of visitation. And if Jesus is king, if he is king of all the earth, if he is king of your life, of all life, then what are you afraid of? Nothing can separate you from his great love. Nothing in all creation. Christ's triumphal entry was just the beginning. It was just a visitation. For he comes again. For he comes again. We are to prepare the way now with our worship. So we go out into the highways and byways. We lay down our garments of self-righteousness, of scoffing, and throw them down. We show others how to do the same, far better for them to fall at his feet now than for him to trample them underneath on the day of wrath. He is the almighty, righteous, far more glorious than Jehu, king of all the earth. Receive today the visitation of the king and go from here proclaiming that he has come. Won't you? Father, give us great courage and boldness as we speak of the king of all the earth who reigns, who sits enthroned at your right hand and who will one day call every life into account. Give us courage to speak his name, Jesus Christ, in every place that we are. You have not gathered for yourselves mouths that cannot talk and hands that cannot work, but you have gathered us and you give us these, these glorious things to do. Help us all to submit ourselves to you in every way and those places of that still are yet to fall into submission to you in our lives. God, give us strength to be overcomers there as much as you give us strength to be overcomers in this world. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for the great glorious king that you have given to us as a gift and the blood spilled on our behalf of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.